0: self-examination procedures developed by leading cancer specialists throughout the world. These exercises are completely straightforward and should be practiced by all women of all ages and ought not to take more than 5 to 10 minutes every 30 days. A prominent physician in New York State said that it might be wise to encourage high school and college students now with self-examination of the breasts, particularly high school girls. We want to add that there seems to be general agreement also that thermography, which picks up heat and radiation from the breast, is the least accurate type of screening. We want to repeat that, that thermography, which picks up from the breast is the least accurate type of screening and that self-examination every month is essential for women of all ages. too modest, too blasé, too superior, or just simply ignorant. In fact, we live in a society in Britain and Canada and in the United States populated by millions of women who do not even bother about a monthly general medical checkup. This sadly too often means that the tumor on the breast may not be discovered until the cancer has spread. Two more parts of the book.
1: Black plastic. On MutiRadio.fm. Well, it used to be it. Well,
2: it used to be that the stockkeepers worked pretty freely with the mechanics and the foreman. We'd kind of stay close to each big job and well be kind of a free agent. Be sure the fellas had the material and tools they needed in time to keep the job from being held up.
3: Hosley pauses before responding, hoping that Maxwell will carry the ball further himself. This does not happen, however. It's uh, different now?
2: Oh, heck, Mr. Hosley, it's no secret that Berquist has made us a bunch of flunkies just like everybody else in the place. All we do is follow steps one, two, three. We sit in our cages and fill out material orders when the foreman say they want anything.
3: It seems that some rather strong feelings have been tapped. Hosley decides to explore, but cautiously. Tell me a little more, then. I'm not quite with you.
2: It's part of the whole reason why I'm leaving. The individual guy just doesn't count around here anymore. Berkowitz has made us a bunch of payroll numbers, and nobody cares about any of us as persons anymore. On this change in the storekeeper's job. I guess he figures, or somebody figured, that we were wasting too much time by being out on the floor with the men. That isn't the worst part of it. Everything the company has done for the last few months since Berkowitz took over has been to make the employee a working stiff who isn't supposed to do anything
3: unless he's told to. The question now is how much data Maxwell has to support his point. Is this really a well thought out observation or a superficial complaint? Could uh, you give me some more examples then?
2: Well, like the way we used to order stuff before. All three of us in the pump section could order anything we wanted to up to $500 when we knew the job would need it. Now, before we can order anything, if it isn't in the store catalogs, even if it only costs a nickel, we have to get approval from purchasing. be the assistant manager of marketing research. Doesn't mean as much as it would here, of course, since it's a pretty small department. But still, I have a lot more to say about how we plan our research projects than I have here at Taplow.
3: Barker notes that this last comment was freely volunteered. That is the fact that Stevens would have more say about things. Is this perhaps significant? To get some expansion, he just restates what Stevens said. You'll have a bigger part in running the show. Right. I guess that's something everybody wants. Barker stays silent. This often produces additional information or show of feeling. At least it's something I'm looking for. Barker has the message pretty clearly now. If Stevens wants to expand on the subject, Barker will cheerfully and understandingly stay with him. But there's no point to Barker's keeping it going, since for his purpose, he's had enough of a picture of Stevens' need for power and authority. I see what you mean. Say Jack, getting back to Tableau, what did you think about the salary we were paying you here?
4: right, left, right thumb. left. Lean head sideways to right shoulder. Try to lean All right. Left, and down. Reverse, left, back, right, and down. Relax. Now for the face. With the lips together, twist the mouth to the right. Now twist to the left. Right Left Right Left Right Left Relax Now open the mouth wide Pucker the lips Open wide Pucker Open wide, pucker.
5: Open
4: wide, pucker. Open wide, pucker. the lips open wide pucker open wide pucker open wide pucker Open wide, pucker. Open wide, pucker. Open wide, pucker. Pucker the lips. the lips. Place air in the right cheek. Now switch the air from right to left. Switch it back. Switch it back. Switch it back. Switch it back back and forth. Now roll the air around in your mouth. Now, crown, relax, crown again, relax, crown, relax, crown, relax, now wide smile, mouth either open or close, relax,
5: smile,
4: relax. Smile, relax. Smile, relax. Now tangle the face with the fingertips quickly and lightly. These exercises are not guaranteed to produce extreme beauty, but they will add to the youthfulness.
6: with dry leaves
1: Black plastic people, thanks for listening support the station support your community do the right thing
7: tims.tesseract.com
8: So you want to be a comic It's not as easy as we make it look, but that's because Mutiny Radio has eight hours a week of open mic stage time for all your comedy workout needs. Strain those improv muscles every Sunday from four to six at Getting Sketchy with David Stolowitz. Press out those new jokes every Monday, six to eight on Joke Workshop. Birds, right? Where on the other hand, geese... Right? they only crime equally as mean and four minute critiques from everyone Get positive by host Pam Benjamin. Pump those dick jokes every Thursday, seven to nine with true hustle Thursdays. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THC D. you want more open mics. Fridays, six to eight. Happy hour with guest host and George D. Smith. Pew, pew, pew! Four open mics every week at Mutiny Radio, brother!
7: THE ROXY THEATER IS SAN FRANCISCO'S FAVORITE nonprofit profit ARTHOUSE CINEMA, BRINGING YOU THE BEST, COOLEST, WEIRDEST, MOST THOUGHT-PROVOKING MOVIES OF THE PAST, PRESENT AND FUTURE. HANDS DOWN, THERE IS NO BETTER WAY TO GET YOUR FILM FIX THAN AT THIS LEGENDARY HISTORIC THEATER. VISIT WWW.ROXY.COM, THAT'S www ecom TODAY FOR SHOWTIMES AND TICKETS.
9: to Mutiny Radio at radio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things.
8: Are you tired?
3: are all in and the peaches are rotten the oranges are packed in the creosote dumps they're flying them back to the mexican border to save all their money then wade back again
10: good morning mutineers this is the bee and you're listening to labor and love radio on
8: mutinyradio.fl done just the same they died in the hills And they died in the valleys Somewhere to heaven Without any name Goodbye to my one Goodbye Rosalina Adios me amigo Jesus Maria You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane,
3: all they will call you will be, deep, or deep Some of us are illegal, and others not wanted, our work contracts out, and we have to move on
6: hundred miles to the Mexican border They chase us like rustlers Like outlaws, like thieves Goodbye to my
10: Good morning, everyone. This is the Labor and Love Show. Welcome to you.
7: Two days past 18, on, huh? he was waiting for the there bus and his here. army green sat Washington down in a
10: Washington.
7: Cafe there War gave his order on. to a girl with a bow in her military. hair. He's a Pugel little shy, power. so she gave him a smile oh. and he said, would you mind sitting? Friday night at a football game the Lord's Prayer said in the anthem saying a man said folks would you bow your
10: Eddie James there and you know you got to serve somebody. Good morning everyone. this is the B. Welcome to Labor and Love Radio on Mutiny Radio and mutinyradio.fm. We're coming at you this morning from 2781 21st Street in the Meadow Meadow, the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco. This is the show where we tell you like it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is wherever you work, you're probably on the menu, and never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Good morning, everybody. We had uh, our opening set there. Started out, of course, with "Deportees." Deportees by the Highwayman. Highwayman. None other than Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christofferson. Um, quite a group there. Johnny Cash singing lead there on Just Deportees." Much more about that in a bit. We had, then we had Traveling Soldier by the Dixie Chicks about to the fact that every day somewhere American troops are involved in wars every day this is for those soldiers who are out there and also to get them back home wars where workers of one class shoot down workers of another class thin out the possibility of resistance to capitalism and last we had Edie james queen of the blues gotta serve somebody the bob dylan classic reminds us that yes, your indecision, your hesitation serve someone. By just standing around, you're rushing backwards. Okay, now I remarked about that case. We're talking about that case of uh, deportees and This is the song, of course, relates the fact that even though these people have come to United States and worked, you know, they're uncelebrated. No one remembers them. Just barely their names. And other than that, they'll be just deportees. The song was written by Woody Guthrie and popularized by Pete Seeger. Since then, it's been recorded by virtually everybody. Uh, in the certainly in the country and western genre Um, anyway a a Chicano writer named Tim Z. Hernandez decided that yeah that wasn't good enough he wanted to go and find out who these people were this is part of a uh, an interview Latino USA on NPR,
11: here we go. 32 people on the plane, four Americans, including three crew members and an immigration official, and 28 migrant farm workers. Everyone died that morning, all in the same way. But they were not all treated the same after death. The 28 Mexican field workers on that plane were known as braceros. They had come here at the request of the U.S. government and were headed back to Mexico but didn't make it. After the crash, only the remains of the four Americans were sent back to their families. The Mexican citizens were buried in a mass grave in California under a tiny plaque that read,
1: 28 Mexican citizens who died in an airplane accident near Colinga.
11: 28 Mexican citizens, that's all they would call them. And for decades, that's all there was. No one identified the remains of the 28 passengers. No one asked for their families. No one really paid attention until a Mexican-American author came along and it became personal. From NPR and Futuro Media, this is Latino USA. I'm Fernanda Chavarri, guest hosting today's episode where we go back 70 years to find out the names of those 28 unnamed people and find out how one man made it his life mission to give them names. And to do that, I'm joined by producer Maggie Freeling. Hi, Maggie. Hey, Fernanda. So when you and
9: I found out about this incident that took place 70 years ago, we were talking about how these people were virtually forgotten. They were nameless in death and in the news. But the crash itself, it turns out that more people might know about it than they realize. Goodbye, to my one.
12: Goodbye, Rosalita. Adios, mi amigos.
11: And it's all because of one song that kept the story alive throughout the decades a song that has a very long, confusing title
9: Deportee, parentheses,
11: Plain wreck at Los Gatos. And
9: it's sung here by Pete Seeger, a super famous American folk music icon.
13: 600 miles to that Mexico border. They chase us like applause and but Pete like
11: didn't write the song. He just made it famous in the 1950s. Pete's good friend, Woody Guthrie,
9: wrote it. When Woody heard about the crash on the radio, he felt this strong sense of injustice. So he wrote his feelings down as a poem, and it later became the song. are all these
5: friends,
13: all scattered like dry leaves? Says they are just deportees.
11: Who are these friends who are scattered like dried leaves? The radio said they were just deportees. These kinds of poems and lyrics were not unusual for Woody Guthrie. He was always sort of a revolutionary.
14: Woody was kind of the embodiment of your quote-unquote everyman, in the sense that he lived and worked and wrote and traveled among the people. I'm Nora Guthrie, and I'm Woody Guthrie's daughter. We called Nora to find out why Woody wrote this. There was a very strong similarity between the migrant workers in the 1930s and the Okies in the 1930s.
9: The Okies were farmers in Arkansas, Kansas, Tennessee, and, of course, Oklahoma. They lost their homes during the Dust Bowl and migrated to California. Woody Guthrie was one of these
14: people. When Woody came to California, He was homeless, living in tents and little tin shacks. And so were the Mexican field workers. (laughs) They're kind of all in the same boat. And I think that just instinctively, he connected with their plight. He didn't start out to be political. He started out just being curious. So he would always dig further and further uh, into the news reports. And that was what happened with the plane wreck at Los Gatos. Somewhere along the
11: way, Pete Seeger, who was Woody's friend, got a hold of the poem, set it to music, and started singing it. Then, the song got huge. It took on a life of its own and was covered by dozens of musicians.
13: Johnny Cash, Johnny Rodriguez.
3: The crops are all in, and the beaches are, are rotten.
9: Dolly Parton. The Joan Baez, so done. They Bob Dylan, the they
7: the
13: money. They money.
9: Bruce Springsteen, Goodbye. and Woody's son Arlo
11: Guthrie.
12: Goodbye,
11: So you have all these super famous all-American music icons singing about Mexican farm workers in the 1940s. And it's really crazy because this song
9: was sung throughout the decades, and yet nobody bothered to find out who these people
14: were. And my father left a lot of songs like this. Sometimes I call them like seeds to be harvested by the next generation. So the, the thing is that he left this song with the question, why weren't the deportees named?
15: These were the words that kept sort of I kept humming in my head. All they will call you will be deportees. All they will call you. Uh, I'm Tim Hernandez, and I'm the author who's been working on this plane wreck at Los Catos for the last uh, seven years. And the name of your book is? The name of
9: my book is All They Will Call You. So here's where Tim comes in. He's a professor and an author, so he's always sort of digging for stories. One day, Tim was doing research for something unrelated back in 2010
15: when he came across a newspaper article. And it said 100 people see an airplane fall out of the sky, ship plunge to earth, and, and it was a farm labor accident. So Tim was like,
11: weird, that sounds familiar. And he realized that it was the same story as the one he knew from the song. And the same way that Woody Guthrie was bothered by the injustice decades ago, Tim too wanted resolution for the families of the victims. So Tim set off on a quest.
15: You know, I just let my curiosity sort of pull me and I began to ask, who is all and who are they and what do they call you? And, and that's uh, that's just what kept me going. That was second- a quest
11: that over the years became more and more personal for Tim as he saw the similarities between his life growing up in the Central Valley and the migrant farm workers who died that day.
15: You know, growing up, The son of migrant farm workers, I saw firsthand the moments where my family uh, felt voiceless and um, and I started to see them play out as I got older, not beyond my family. I'd see them play out in the broader community. You know, Tim put himself in the shoes of these
9: 28 families and thought this could have been me. This could have been my family
15: i was born and raised here in california's san joaquin valley the agricultural hub here uh, my parents were actually migrant farm workers originally from south texas and new mexico you know kind of growing up with migrant family uh you know we traveled a lot quite a bit working in different fields and different harvests um, throughout the year and my parents did that pretty much uh you know up until i don't know i was about maybe eight or nine
11: And although Tim's family didn't participate in the Bracero program, they did spend generations working the fields in Texas and California.
4: Farming is America's biggest industry. All such farm jobs, which are tough, dirty, or unpleasant, are generally referred to as stoop labor.
11: The Bracero program, to summarize, was a seasonal worker program that was a sort of amicable agreement between the U.S. and Mexico that went on from the early 40s to the mid-60s. At that time, the U.S. desperately needed workers to pick fruits and vegetables.
4: It isn't easy to find men willing to take on such undesirable kinds of work. Understandably then, the American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens.
11: So they gave Mexican farm workers temporary permits to come here and do the work. Millions of Mexican workers came and went. When the harvesting season was over and the U.S. government didn't need them anymore,
9: they would send them back by train or fly them by plane.
11: And that morning, that's exactly what was happening those 28 migrant workers were flying from San Francisco to El Centro, right on the border with Mexico, in a U.S. government chartered plane.
9: So based on Tim's research and interviews with the families over the years, here's what happened after the crash. Officials recovered as many scattered body parts as they could. Then they formally notified the families of the four Americans and sent them caskets of pieced together remains, some as far as upstate
11: New York. As for the Mexican passengers, the leftover body parts were also put in caskets, but they were not sent back to Mexico. They were buried in that mass grave we mentioned earlier, 14 on one side, 14 on the other in Fresno, California. So the Mexican passengers' bodies were never
9: repatriated. Some families in Mexico were notified by the Mexican government via letter. Others only heard about it on the radio. It's unclear exactly
11: how each of the families found out, and if they even knew where their loved ones were buried. We reached out to the Mexican government officials at the embassy in D.C., but were denied an interview. Of course, we weren't going to find people working there who were working for the Mexican government 70 years ago, but we wanted to know how the government handled this. An official said via email that today their policy is to help families in Mexico find funeral homes and cremation services in the U.S., and that based on the family's financial need, the Mexican government can help them pay for part of the cost of getting their remains back to Mexico. We also wanted to know how only
9: some of the victims of the crash ended up identified. So to find out, we flew to meet Tim Hernandez in California.
16: This is all cattle territory up here. It's uh, Los Gatos Canyon.
15: It's all ranchers. In fact, Larry's um, family were cattle ranchers up there. They were
11: wrecked. Oh so- did you see the baby cows? I'm sorry. No. They were the cutest little <laughs> baby cows.
16: <laughs> did you see the big Longhorns earlier? Yes. Yeah.
9: We're driving to Colinga about an hour southwest from Fresno with Tim and his friend Larry Hawes. Larry's a Harley riding, leather
11: vest wearing white guy. He's sort of Tim's sidekick and an unofficial historian of his own family, the family that owned the property where the plane crashed 70 years ago.
15: It's hard, every turn looks the same here, unless you know exactly where the crash happened. So then that's what prompted me to want to call, find Larry's, the Gaston family, so that I could identify exactly where it happened.
11: I have to ask, what are we driving through? What is, what is this?
16: This is called the oil patch and this is the Kalinga oil field. And uh, this is, uh, Kalinga is actually coaling station A.
9: Oil was actually discovered here, and today, there's a whole bunch of industrial oil derricks, covering a huge
15: part of a barren desert area. The plane would have been able to see these oil derricks as it was coming in here this way, and because he had crash landed that airplane twice before, it it makes sense that one could actually you know you could surmise from that that he was more than likely looking for a strip of dirt to land on. You know, There's nothing you could do. Crash landed it two twice. That same exact airplane he had crash landed twice before.
9: Okay, so it wasn't the exact plane, but the kind of plane, a Douglas DC-3, which back in the 30s and 40s was a pretty revolutionary plane. Frank Atkinson,
11: the pilot, was used to flying and crash landing the DC-3. So he thought he could land that plane again. And he might've been able to, if all that was wrong was a plane malfunction, but...
16: Plane wing broke off? and it started spinning out of control and throwing people out. We're here? We We are here.
11: We're going through the barbed wire thing. I'm so short. This barely works. (laughs)
16: This is the actual crash site, and this was where the main bodies were at, and dead people were everywhere, right where we're standing.
11: Larry wasn't born when the plane crashed, but growing up, he heard stories about that day and about how his family raced to the scene to help in any way they could. Larry's mom and his Aunt June were little girls at the time.
9: His Aunt June was 9 years old when she saw the wreckage and is the only surviving
15: witness in Larry's family. June was standing, you know, not too far off here, looking at and eyewitnessing witnessing all this.
11: June is turning 80 soon, and she still remembers it all in very graphic detail. So we called her to get her account of what happened.
5: We saw bushes with brains hanging on it, and my thought then, as a
11: little girl, that looks like decorating a Christmas tree. It was just
6: all over with these brains.
11: At the time, June didn't realize the impact this would have on her beyond the trauma of witnessing a crash. Do you remember, as you
9: got older, learning more about it? I do remember because my mother was following
5: it in the papers. And I remember her, shortly after that, saying, this has become an international incident because they've buried all of these uh, people together in a mass grave. Then that really occurred to me how really terrible that was, that they were just demeaning these people because they weren't us. By leaving their name off, I finally came to see what an insult it was.
9: Tim also felt like the 28 people who died that day were not treated humanely
11: or equal to the families of the American passengers. So he wanted to right that wrong. Tim felt that these braceros were sort of invisible in life. And then in death, they weren't even given a name.
15: And some big dream I might have in the future maybe put a, some kind of a headstone marker with their names on it. So first,
9: he went to the cemetery in Fresno where the mass grave is. He wanted to see the plot. So he asked Carlos Rascón, the cemetery director, to show him.
11: After they walked over and saw the tiny plaque in the back of the cemetery that read 28 Mexican citizens, Tim asked Carlos to see the cemetery's ledger of names. Surely the cemetery would have a record of who was buried there, right? But when Carlos pulled it out of the archives…
16: So it just said, you uh, know, Mexican nationals 28 times.
11: At this point, Carlos also wanted to find their names. He wanted to know who was buried in his cemetery. So Carlos joined Tim on his search, which led them to one more place, the Hall of Records in Fresno. That's the place that keeps all birth and death certificates. And it was there that they were finally able to get a list of names. But they quickly realized that list was unreliable. In Mexico, you usually have two last names, your maternal last name and paternal last name, and so many of them were treated as first names. There was somebody with the last name Lara that was turning to a woman named Laura, and many of the names in Spanish were turned into Italian names.
9: So they knew right away this list was botched.
16: The fact that they were misspelled, it kind of maybe shows a little bit of who might have been behind the pin or the books.
9: Sure enough, there had always been a list with the names, but why didn't
11: it make it to the cemetery?
16: I would think that it's just it was a very sad oversight, I would say.
11: So there they were, with an actual list of names in their hands for the first time, and it was wrong. But then, Carlos
9: remembered that every November, on the Day of the Dead, someone came by to leave flowers at the mass grave. Someone was visiting a loved one. This was Tim's first real clue that these people were not totally forgotten.
11: He wanted to find who that person was. So Tim put out a call on the local paper in Fresno that said, if you or someone you know is related to any of the 28 Mexican passengers who died in that plane crash in 1948, contact me. And someone did. That's coming up after the break.
10: okay and uh, we'll take a break here too play the rest of that later in the show so far Tim, Tim Hernandez the uh, Chicano writer has decided to find out the names of those people and not leave them just being deportees uh, great story okay okay Here's some poetry by Jack Kerouac and Steve Allen. I had a slouch hat top one
13: time. I had a slouch hat too one time. The old slouch hat. I just keep walking around. and He keeps walking around with me. Around and around that necktie counter we went. When it rained, I wore my old slouch hat. It was a good felt that I uh, had to carry through many rainy day, late fall and early spring. Perhaps it was a rainy day and the house dick might have saw my hat. Each tie on that ring worth six bucks. Brooks Brothers, 60 bucks worth of ties, slacks with peculiarities. I couldn't even find a pair of slacks I thought it was suitable to wear. Wrapped one pair around me and pinned it in with a safety pin. <laughs> Pulled up my trousers and went out and looked at myself in the mirror. Oh, no, those won't do, and I walked out. Wrapped the slacks around my waist, took two other pair, went to the mirror, threw them at the salesman. No, those won't do. Good afternoon, and walked out. The slouch hat I got at Harvard Club, Yale Club, Princeton Club, or one of the other, Dartmouth Club, University Club. Always barred the Yacht Club, because it was a little over my kin because the doorman knew that only Mr. Astor, Mr. Vanderbilt, and Mr. Whitney belonged. He couldn't say, good morning, Mr. Astor, because he knew I wasn't Mr. Astor. I always figured a way to heal into those other clubs. Not only a member of who's who, but a who's who also have to be a member of who's who in New York in the special clique of who's. (laughs) I get in the athletic club many times. And I'd go up in the billiard room. and I would wander back around the room, hands in back, and every coat rack I backed up against to feel for the wallet. One day, I walked out of there with 10 wallets. Bellboy looking me over. Pretty soon, a very dignified-looking gentleman come up and buzzed the bellboy. He says, who? And I says, man told me his name while we we're drinking at the bar and told me to meet him in this billiard room at the athletic club. I don't see him, so I best I better go. Tell me about the old slouch hat. Oh, one of my numerous trips to one of the numerous clubs in New York City. The hat finally was left in the hotel, which I had to leave rather hardly one night, never to return. So the hat was given to the cast offs of the hotel, which they collect and rummage sells. May now be worn by one of the members of Skid Row, New York City, the Bowery. I seen that hat by moonlight. Yeah. I had a pointed mustache, and I mean pointed, half inch from here. Double-breasted vest and a derby hat and striped trousers, English shoes, black, very pointed. They were Hannah shoes. People on Broadway turn and look at me. The worst is yet to come. I had a paint sneer with a long black ribbon to my buttonhole. And I wore a carnation, white or red. Boy, did I look like something. A year later, I got caught. I was dressed differently and everything, but boy, that mustache and that pince-necks was really out of this world. I used that outfit six months. Finally, had to pack it in because it was too well-worn. Pince-nez was in a coat I stole. Mustache I grew in the sanitarium while taking one of my numerous drug cures. My mother'd come to see me. She says, oh no, cut it off. I'm just having a little fun, mother. Took it on the lamb and went to Canada. Late at night, I'm full of morphine and I come down full of goofballs too. This guy had a ventriloquist doll and he gave out this Texas guinan routine. Hello sucker, we like your money as well as anybody else's. As a matter of fact, the bigger your roll, the more we take you. He used to get everybody interested with the doll and cut out silhouettes, put stripes in your tie. Wound up in his room, gave him a shot of morphine. Out on the highway, I thumbed a ride into Buffalo, and I put the bum on the guy for something to eat. He said, eat in my drugstore. So we went in the back, and he had corn on the cob and boiled potatoes. Say, fella, I was hear people talk about morphine. What's it look like? He shows me. He had a key, a cabinet. He had bottles of hundreds, quarter grains, half grains, pen upon dilaudid, everything. As soon as he tended the customers, I emptied the bottles. Got out of there pretty quick. Bought a safety pin in Buffalo and took a shot in the toilet. Come out and saw a fella shaving, his coat hanging there. Hung my own coat and gave his coat a brush in my hand. Felt his wallet, washed my hands, went out and took off with the wallet. So I started out on a shoplifting campaign in Buffalo. It was about 1910. Wasn't very experienced at it. Started out with a top coat and sold it in a taxicab stand. Next day, I decided to get myself some suits. And I went up and I had a suit box. And I walked about and put the suit box in one of the dressing rooms, looked and fooled in the mirror, went out, and I hawked those two. Next day, like a damn fool, go out to the same store, but I got a newspaper instead of a suit box, thought I'd try a new routine. Two guys kinda watching me. I went in and wrapped myself up, two suits, went in the elevator, bottom gentleman tapped me on the arm, will you come with me, please? And the county jail, they ate breakfast, you got oatmeal with one spoonful of molasses. For lunch, stew, mostly bones, graveyard stew. And for supper, dinner, at night, beans. And you couldn't smoke. It's
10: been a bad week for uh, Jenny's ex-husband. The great Jenny,
12: remember? No estoy pidiendo joyas, ni pieles, ni palacios que me alfombre las calles al pasar tampoco es que yo exija ni tierras ni riquezas más que estar recibiendo me gusta regalar tan solo estoy pidiendo See sí, you oh.
10: a random set we had uh, first of all Jack Kerouac from an album that he made with uh, Steve Allen uh, the pianist uh, poetry for the beat generation that was Slouch Hat by Jack Kerouac and then from uh, Jenny Rivera the late Jenny Rivera late of uh Born and raised in Long Beach, California. And the bad news this week for her ex, Esteban Loyasa. Loyasa. Hope I'm getting that right. Who was a pitcher. uh, For a while, a very accomplished pitcher. An all-star. Started the all-star game for the American League. Won 20 games with the Chicago White Sox. Uh was arrested in just across the border here in California with a big catch of uh, cocaine that was in a uh, in a secret room in his house Jenny sang ni princessa ni esclava I'm not a princess but I'm not a slave just a woman and John Fromer there another late comrade brother john fromer uh with we do the work what i want to do now is finish the deportees uh, documentary Uh, tim z hernandez's attempt to find out who those 28 deportees were the ones who are sung about in the famous woody guthrie song here we go
15: What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.
11: whose bodies had been buried in a mass grave under a plaque that read 28 Mexican citizens. And not long after Tim put out the call, he got a response.
1: Someone gave me a piece of newspaper and said, look, they're talking about your grandpa's uh, plane crash.
11: This is Jaime Ramirez. We met him in Fresno with Tim.
1: And I started reading it. And he said, I got my computer and I
11: started... Jaime went to his computer and started writing I... Tim an email. He wrote in Spanish, I know about the accident because that's where my maternal grandfather, named Ramon Paredes, and my uncle, Guadalupe Ramirez Lara, were killed. Jaime then included his address.
1: My phone number. And ended with, if you
11: need information, just let me know.
1: Anything that you
15: want to know, just yeah. Come. <laughs> what do you need to know? I'm right here. <laughs> I was like, wow. And so that was really hopeful. Your email, as short as it was and as quick as it was, it had so much hope inside of it. And so I was excited to, to meet you right away, yeah.
9: And not only is Jaime a surviving family member, but
11: Tim didn't have to go to Mexico. Jaime was right there in Fresno. Jaime owns a restaurant called Ole Frijole, and everyone in Fresno knows the restaurant. Most of the employees there are related to Jaime, and they're descendants of two of the passengers from the plane crash, his uncle and his grandpa.
15: So when he first told me that that was his restaurant, I said, no, I said, you're kidding, because I've been there since I was a kid. You know, I've been going there. I'm sure I've seen you before. And that's my restaurant. And I said, it's legendary. And he said, yeah, it is. You were looking for me, and I was right there.
11: (laughs) And Jaime was there all along in more than one way. Remember the flowers that someone was putting on the mass grave on Dia de los Muertos?
15: And I said, wow, you know, I wonder who that person is. Later on, I would learn that it it was was. you. Yes, I was in Salinas.
11: It was Jaime. He's the one that was putting flowers on the grave. He was Tim's first found family member. And turns out,
1: he was also Tim's golden ticket. The newspaper that my grandmother kept, and I kept it, I don't know why.
11: So here's what happened. Not long after the crash in 1948, a small Spanish-language newspaper published an article that listed every passenger with the correct spelling of both last names.
1: And it had all the names and where they were from in Mexico. The little towns.
9: This was it. Three years of searching, and Tim finally had their names.
11: In very old it looks like it's a front page right
15: uh, yeah it is it is the front page
11: yeah uh-huh. so nice it's a photo. front page and in the front page you have the two photos of a priest <laughs> uh, looking the over the, the bodies yeah. for the funeral service on the right side is the column that has all of the names first last name where they're from the names of their parents or wives, if they knew them. Wow. I'm going to try to translate that as beautifully as it is written in Spanish. Mm -hmm. On Saturday, the 31st of January, that just passed, there was a funeral for the 28 compatriots that were chosen by destiny to perish in an unfortunate accident near Colinga, California. Like, just the way that this mm-hmm. is written is super, like, old oh, it's, newspaper, it's very but poetic
15: it's really also. poetic. It's very poetic. And, in fact, even the even the um, biblical sort of um, Seeing how
9: the Spanish-language paper uh, wrote about the 28 Mexican victims made it even more
11: clear just how differently their deaths were treated and how their remains were handled. Twenty-eight families without closure without being able to have a physical place to mourn. And although, yes, most of the families knew how their sons, brothers, and husbands had died, they didn't get to have a funeral or a place to visit their loved one, lay flowers, just grieve. And as any cemetery director would know, Carlos says there is an importance to being able to visit someone's grave.
16: It just uh, a sense of emptiness, like, wait a minute, you know, it's not just uh, some John Doe that got, you know, no family, indigent, nobody knows. Uh, There was information, and so it left kind of a blank there, like, wait a minute, you know.
11: So now, with the full names spelled correctly, Tim, Carlos, and Jaime could start the process of making a proper headstone with all the names on it. And they would also travel to Mexico
9: to try and find other families. Tim wanted to tell them that their loved ones were no
11: longer in a nameless mass grave. So the first family Tim wanted to meet was Jaime's. Remember, both his grandfather and great uncle died in the crash. So Tim and Jaime got on a plane and flew to Guanajuato in central Mexico. They were there on the 67th anniversary of the crash.
0: Jaime set up a meeting with his family, and right at 10:40
9: a.m., the time when the plane crashed they had a moment of silence.
11: During the trip, Jaime told Tim a little more about his grandfather and great uncle. Guadalupe and Ramon grew up in Charco de Pantoja, a farming community in Guanajuato. When they got older, they both owned land and farmed garbanzo beans, wheat, and alfalfa. But their town struggled to get an irrigation
9: system in place. They didn't have the money to get it set up. That's when the idea to go work
11: in the fields in California came up. So they both went back and forth, working as braceros and bringing money back to their town.
1: Do you remember stories growing up about them? Yeah, it's my, tío, I still Era muy contento. Le gustaba andar a caballo. Y, y le gustaba tirar balazos. His uncle
11: liked horse riding and to just like
1: and my, shoot up bullets in the air. me decía que iba al
11: his uncle was so blonde that they called him corn hair, like <laughs> Pelos Elote. Jaime's family is split between Fresno, California and Guanajuato and these are the types of stories that have been keeping his grandfather alive in Jaime's memory.